Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. For indigenous peoples here in the so-called United States, our death, our mortality rates, one in 390 of us are dying. One in 390 of our people have died from the coronavirus, highest in the world. And we didn't know that when I was first writing this piece, but we did know that it was going to be pretty grisly and grueling. The prophecies don't necessarily tell us about beautiful things only. They tell us about these really hard things. Today on American Indian Airwaves, heroics, women's lived experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic, a brand new book that draws together the stories of over 52 women across the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. For the hour, we'll speak with one of the contributing authors here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Today on American Indian Airwaves, an exclusive two-part interview with one of the contributing authors of a brand new book titled Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic. The book is an anthology that draws together the stories of 52 women across the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. The collection encompasses the perspectives of women who are frontline responders and recovering patients, going out to work, staying at home to work, and losing their jobs, living with multiple generations, and living in isolation, women grieving loved ones and celebrating new love, women preparing to give birth and supporting the dying. Although differing based on location, age, race, and health, they share the unique capacity of women to bring their strong ingenuity and love for others and for self to an uncertain time. The anthology is inspired both by the risk of the pandemic inherent to women and their tremendous role in the country's response. Marcus Lopez, co-host and executive producer of American Indian Airwaves and myself, sat down and spoke with one of the contributing authors of this brand new book. Tia Oros Peters is Chief Executive Officer of the Seventh Generation Fund. She's been active in community organizing, advocacy, and nonprofit development for over three decades. She is, again, Chief Executive Officer of the Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples, which supports community-generated cultural revitalization, movement building, and re-indigenization strategies. And now, Tia Oros Peters on Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic. We're speaking with Tia 
Odos Peters, the Chief Executive Officer of the Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples. Welcome to the American Indian Airways, Tia. Thank you for having me, Marcus. It's great to connect with you today. Now, we are speaking with you, not only talking about the seventh generation, but also about heroics, the women's live experiences during the coronavirus pandemic. Talk about that. How did you get involved in this? Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to this program. You know, I never expected to receive an invitation to submit for this anthology, um, but I did. And um, I was invited to submit to this anthology and um, learned about it from, actually from Gino Altamirano, um, one of your Too Much People. He had reached out and had mentioned that he knew someone who was pulling together an anthology of women writers. And would I be interested? And I, I kind of, I appreciated that the reach out, but I really wasn't sure. Through the pandemic had hit, things were um, the way they were. I was feeling very burdened in my heart and in my spirit, wasn't creating anything, not the written word, certainly no kind of artwork or anything like I typically would. But in conversations and communicating with the editor, Janelle Sarah, um, I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And maybe it'll even help um, bring me to another place in my in myself a good place a positive place in order to make some sort of creative work and contribute and we'll see if it gets selected and um, that's how I got connected to it and find it to be a really it was a really good opening it was like a, a window opened at a time when all of us were so shuttered in literally and I think just the feeling of fear doom that was beginning to just set in had really grabbed me um, I, in a certain way, I didn't even realize until I began to write this piece. I was curious, uh, you know, Marcus and I have had the, the honor and pleasure to work with you in different capacities and, of course, uh, you know, interview you in the context of the work that you do with Seven Generation Fun. And I was wondering if you could maybe, uh, and I know you're you're used to writing a, a lot of reports, grant proposals, and and I was wondering maybe talk about um, what you authored and how that's so different in in telling your own story. Yeah, thank you. I, I um, yeah, I think that's also even the reason, Larry and Marcus, that I, that I wasn't going to do it. Mm. It felt almost indulgent when so many of our people were already getting hit. We also knew that so many Indigenous peoples here in North America and globally would be the first ones to be the most made vulnerable, made at risk, and most damaged and injured by whatever that pandemic was that we didn't even know in those earlier months what it was going to mean. We had no idea. So at a certain level, I felt it was maybe too indulgent even to consider writing something creative. And then yet within the world that we work in, in the philanthropic arena, in the social justice movement, all of that, and also in the indigenous people's movement, there was so much conversation already happening around prophecy. And around this time was a foretold time. Um, we didn't know necessarily what it, the shape it would take. You know, ancestors have been talking about these kinds of things and passing down stories for so long in different kinds of ways. Um, but a lot of negative signs have been seen, like burning sky or water you can't drink. And it began to also be really a lot on my mind. And so the piece that I wrote is called The Ancestors Already Know, Prophecy and Regeneration in a Time of Pandemic. That title kind of came to me 
um, after I wrote it, and it, it was a way for me to frame my own thinking and maybe even my own belief in hope and believing that we would survive because it was a foretold time. And it, you know, as much as devastation was beginning to, to show itself in those early first months of the pandemic, even then and even now, believe that we will survive this. We know that the March date, um, the March um, statistics, as I was mentioning earlier to you, Larry, for Indigenous peoples here in the so-called United States, our death, our mortality rates, mm. one in 390 of us are dying. Mm. One in 390 of our people have died from the coronavirus, highest in the world. Mm. And we didn't know that when I was first writing this piece, but we did know that it was going to be pretty grisly and grueling. The prophecies don't necessarily tell us about beautiful things only. They tell us about these really hard things. Mm. And at that time that I was writing this, um, where I live now is there's a family of deer, and um, there was a female deer, a doe, that lives here, and she was pregnant. Mm. And in trying to find hope, in trying to think about life, in trying to think about something beyond just surviving by holding on by her fingernails, I watched her every day. And as she grew, I could see the fawn inside of her move, and that gave me a lot of hope. And I could see how all the deer here were living with each other and how gentle they were with each other, things you don't read in hunting magazines. And I, and I, I really believed that we'd survive. And so I centered my piece starting with her and her life underneath the redwood trees that we live among here, and um, that's how I wrote it. Kia, you talked about within this heroics, and that's her... O-I-C-S. So I just wanted to, and, and as far as our voice is concerned, you can't see that it's definitely a her, a her story, and about involving something like 52 women across the United States. And you're talking about the perspective of women who are frontline responders, recovering patients, going out to work, seeing home to work, they're losing their jobs, living multiple generations, and living in isolation, women grieving loved ones, and celebrating new love, women preparing to give birth and supporting the dying. Obviously, your your start when this deer story and the story of the doe and their families and whatnot. It's about the unique capacity of women to bring the strength, ingenuity, and love for others and for self across time. People don't know you, but you've been doing that for many decades. And within that, not only within the locale that you are, seven generation is Northern California, but throughout the world, what attracts me so much about the seven generation in your work is the fact that it's not about one particular community, but it is about the different, different particular community, whether it be when Standing Rock, was very much in the news, or whether it be where a little village in Bolivia was not much in the news, that you tie it all together. Is this this recovery, is this a recovery just from the pandemic, or just recovery from the society we live in? Yeah, thank you, Marcus. You know, as with anything that we write or create, you know, it kind of has a life of its own. And so what I found in, in writing this, not only because I was trying so much to not be doom and gloom, even though that's a real part of, of life and what this time is, this era is, but also to try to get to that place of regeneration and, and, and thinking about things I had been taught over my lifetime around prophecy 
And what this might mean is that knowing that part of the teaching not only is in the negative signs like a burning sky or water you can't drink or people killing each other, um, families killing each other, you know, brother and brother, sister and sister, was that it also is a time, part of the teachings say that we might be able to make good decisions. We might be able to make good decisions and move in the opposite direction of these negative things and make good decisions and stop, for example, harm worshipping. We can make good decisions that are more enlightened. We can return, like our Hopi relatives talk about, to planting corn and growing food. And part of my essay talks about that. Because part of the things that I did and my husband did at this time was um, because we were home and we weren't traveling you know, as we normally do four or five times a month, um, nationally or internationally, we um, began to return to gardening and planting food. And the relationship and memory that, that was helping us reinvigorate around seeds and taking care of little ones, the little plants. And we've always had a garden, but because we were home all the time, we were able to really rethink about things in a deeper way and to regenerate our own lives as much as we were trying to help support and regenerate um, those that we work with in our seventh generation fund organization. So it was very, it transcended the personal, but in some ways it also concentrated and magnified the personal experience um, simultaneously. Tia, when you are writing this in your home and you're given a particular amount, they always do, amount of words and whatnot. What was the most difficult thing you found in writing this story? Should not go down sort of a, a black hole of sadness? They keep trying to return to something that was hopeful or positive. Or, and I think that's why I really centered on that dough. Um, she's lived here. Her, you know, she was already here before Chris and I moved in two years ago with, at that time, her little fawn, who now is grown and lives here. And she's a full-grown full grown female now. But I really centered on that doe. First of all, I saw her every day, and I watched her as she was growing her fawn inside. And because of her nature and mine, um, we could go really close to each other. And so I could get close enough to watch her fawn move inside her. And the other deer, particularly the males, particularly one male, that was probably the father of that, that fawn, how he cared for her. Whenever she stood up to walk over anywhere, he would stand up and accompany her. And when she went to go sit down underneath the redwoods, he would go sit next to her and groom her. That was such this beautiful, hopeful kind of, um, well, they were giving me a message and a teaching every single day. And I could go outside and stand right next to her and him and them and watch them. And it was um, really helpful. I knew that they were giving me a gift at a time when I just wanted to be sad. I just wanted to be lonely. Missed my grandchildren terribly. Missed our daughter terribly. And, and just couldn't, because we haven't seen them. At that point, we hadn't seen them in a number of months. And, and it just really helped affirm that things will be all right. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, part one of a two-part interview with Tia Oros-Peters, Chief Executive Officer of the Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples. She is a contributory author on the brand new book, Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic. It's an anthology 
of stories of 52 women across the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now back to the interview. Because when I was writing it, it like I found time and time again, it just, you know, and all these numbers and statistics and the hundreds of thousands of deaths that now we've seen had not yet hit. But probably like everybody in the world, I sure felt it coming, right? It was like this cloud. And then I'd see things on the news and it would say things like, and I wrote about this in the, in the essay, just a little touched on it was like NASA from a satellite had said they could see the California poppies that bloomed from, they could see them from space. Like that blew my mind. And I was thinking about all these things that as we, those first few months when everything was really quiet in the world, how like waters got clear. And I talked to our sister, Sandra Kramer, in Australia, and she's like, well, the sky is so blue for the first time in some of the cities in Australia. And waters were running clear. Animals were regenerating themselves, just like that little clover doe who sat outside underneath the the redwood tree. The sun was shining. Everyone had quieted. And I thought, well, the world is telling me that we're going to be okay. Maybe not all of us individually, but the world will be okay. And what it really needed to do is take a breath. Mother Earth needed a break. And she forced this on us. You know, um, I, I read about how people were talking about, especially Indian people, um, the artist um, Isaac Murdoch was talking about, you know, one of the reasons this pandemic happened, he was saying, and I believe him, was our fractured relationship with the natural world. Um, animal torture and brutality against the earth um, to use things and keep consuming things and never give back. The, the break in the relationship between humanity and the world, the earth, animals, all of our relations that aren't human, you know, contributed to the creation of a pandemic. And it was really the, the earth slapping us back and saying, no more, because they were all fine. They weren't dying from COVID. The trees weren't. Deer weren't. People were. And that's a message and a teaching that kind of helped give me clarity. We know that you do work with internationally with the Declaration of Rights Indigenous Peoples, the UN document, and you've you've been doing that for many, many, many years. And about the rights of, you touched on it, the rights of Mother Earth. Talk about that when you're writing the story and saying that many times your organization and you personally, when you were, were facilitating the Women's International Women's Caucus, always came back to women and the Mother Earth. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think that really helped shape and inform my own consciousness around this writing, just the, that experience of doing that work in different arenas, whether it was local or statewide, national, or the international diplomacy arena that you're referencing. I really do believe that when we see um, these fractures in, in the universe or when we see something like a pandemic, that it is the earth speaking through us in, a, in, a, in some kind of form. You know, those prophecies have talked about things like the water not being able to be, to be, we couldn't drink it, that it would poison us. And I've done a lot of work, as you know, in the international arena around the protection of water and taking a stand against aquicide, against what kills the water, consumerism, pollution, extractive industries, basically violence. It takes its form and it pollutes the water. The, the water is responding. It's like, nope, we do not want this. This kills the, the spiritual quality. This kills the vitality of water. So too in, the, in Mother Earth. And, and the illnesses that we see, whether it's the sky, 
that burns and birds drop out of skies over cities because there's so much pollution they can't fly or we see you know greenhouse gases impact the ability of trees to reach their full potential we know it's human caused violence and i'm confident that there's a direct relationship a causal relationship between humanity's self-centeredness and narcissism and oppression and aggression against mother earth and that it it shows itself in things like pollution, pandemic, holes in the ozone, etc. Just like it shows itself on violence against Native peoples' communities where people are extracted like missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Two-Spirit or where there's no place for people to live because their homes have been, you know, scorched earth, etc. So I, um, I think there's this constant relationship that's happening. This pandemic strangely as much as it's destroying so much it's revealing all these things and i feel like there's this opportunity for people to like look at these signs look at the signs and make another choice or a multiple choices to do the right thing and there was some time there around the time this was being written which was in the spring i thought that might happen people had slowed down yeah we were sheltered yeah we were scared yeah we were confused um but there was some slowdown and I thought maybe people will see that things have improved in the natural world and reorient ourselves. And by us, it was like just collectively around the world, reorient ourselves to listen to the teachings of indigenous peoples, the ancient teachings that like foretold this, and kind of make some good decisions for their own lives and their own families. I mean, if only just for their own survival, let alone for the whole world. But now we're saying that that's not true. As soon as things opened up, everyone ran back, you know, took off their masks if they ever wore one and are polluting the hell out of everything just like they ever did, taking even more, almost, you know, just like uh, even more desperate to devour everything even more. At the time that I wrote this, it was May, I really hoped we were seeing a change. Sadly, today I can say I don't think we did. We saw the um, opportunities for change, and most of the world didn't take it. Yeah, in listening to you, I was thinking about, um, you know, what we know as hurricanes uh, back east in the southeast. And, um, you know, and I was speaking one of the elders in previous interviews and just meetings when I could travel back home. You know, one of the questions I I had asked was about what what's so different about these last uh, two hurricanes because of the devastation uh, that it caused, the mass flooding, the mass uh, pollution, the mass die-offs of fish relatives, and and many uh, plants and and, and animals um, because of the flooding. And uh, one of the things that she shared with me was that um, what was different about the hurricanes in over four generations of family stories was that with Hurricanes Harvey and and Hurricane Florence, there was no thunder and there was no lightning and that the thunder beans, um, you know, moved slowly as if in in an injured way. And and so I was thinking about, you know, we talk a lot about uh, becoming a good ancestor and I was wondering if you could maybe speak to what that means to you, particularly within uh, the context of what you wrote in the book Heroics? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, what you say, Larry, about the, the thunder beings, it really strikes me because not that long ago, I was 
talking to family back home in Zuni, and um, they said that too, that there was, um, you know, certain times of the year you don't want to hear thunder, and it, and it was there. And here um, in Northern California where I live amongst the Yorks, they, they don't necessarily say that, but they do talk about um, when you see those kinds of storms, it means some really powerful people have gone. And when it was storming here in Northern California was a time when a number of really important people in other parts of the world, the indigenous world, had just died, a, a bunch of them, a bunch of them. And so there were these storms that people were hearing and then these thunder beings were moving at a time we, we know is a message for us that people will die or have died. Important people, powerful people who have spiritual, spiritual responsibilities and, and hold that kind of power. They're connected to that, to that cycle. Um, you know, I guess the real heroes, right? Those are the real heroes of, of our life and of, and of our movement. You know, um, be a good ancestor is something that has been a, a call to action for the work that we do at the Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples, we say, be a good ancestor. And it came out of like a collective consciousness of the kind of work that our, our people do, that, that you both do in your own work and in your own communities and in your own thinking and creating of things. And it's, it's more than being a good neighbor. It's even more than being a good relative that some people say, I guess I would deepen it to say, to be a good ancestor. Like, what are we putting down now? And our ancestors did it for us. That's how we have these teachings. That's how well we were even here. They did it for us. They made decisions that went beyond survival. They even passed things down to us so that we could do more than just survive, so that we could thrive, that we could make good decisions, so we could have good practices, that we would participate and engage in ceremony that would respect the earth, that we would honor other kinds of living beings, not because of what they could serve to us, but what we could give to them and what we do collaboratively, co-creating this universe that we're all on. How would we walk on this earth? You know, who's our common mother? That's being a good ancestor. What are we doing now for our great, great, great grandchildren? And one thing is, is like we're not devouring their food, destroying their lands, drinking their water, or poisoning the earth. If we want to create a world where our great-great-grandchildren have a beautiful, magnificent, lush, rich, abundant life, we have to do things now. Mm -hmm. It may even include sacrifices now that are inconvenient for us, that are uncomfortable for us. But if we know and we believe, and I do believe it, that it helps our great-great-grandchildren have a better life and that we did that, why wouldn't we? It's like leaving a time capsule, I guess. Why wouldn't we leave but make it a whole world, right, that when they come into, into this place, into this world, it's, it's beautiful for them. It's beautiful for them that we put songs on the wind, that we put ceremony down, that we put prayers out there, that build this beautiful world that will hold them, nurture them, sustain them, then they can pass it on. You know, they're really the ones that we're doing all of this for. And the title, you know, Heroics, when I saw that, I was like, ah, I kind of was a little uncomfortable with that because I am no hero, no heroine for sure. There's no, I'm not doing anything more than what I should be doing for our people, for my great-great-grandchildren, um, then we all should be doing. Not None of us are extra special, I don't think. I sure don't see myself that way. Um, but I do think that women have a special opportunity 
maybe some people are listening, to share a perspective and a way of doing things that does think relationally and does think multi-generationally. And I don't know if everyone looks things like that, but I do think that the other writers of this collaborative, this anthology, the other 50 or so women from all over, I, I have the book and I've been looking at it, and, and they, they offer some insights. They offer teachings. They offer um, adaptations. They, they offer you know just a way of proceeding through a time that's so hard and sad and tough and confusing. And it's like kind of like um, shining a light on something. It's like, hey, this is a road you could take. It's a road that's going to be the best for all of our survival. Let's take that road. And um, so I'm really honored to be part of this collective of other women writers. That um, I guess for me, the title is a little, throws me off a little bit. I just don't think any of us are, are heroes. We're just doing what we should be doing, you know, not centering ourselves and centering our future generations as good ancestors. And that was part one of a two-part interview with Tia Oros-Peters. She's Chief Executive Officer of the Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples and a contributory author on the brand new anthology titled Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic, which draws together the stories of 52 women across the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Yes, sister, did you hear? Billy Rose ain't never been found. When missing on the 4th of June, family hasn't heard a sound. Jim Crow met a walk-in that knocked Said she was meeting friends downtown But then she never showed And nobody knows Hey, hey, where did she go? Hey, hey, someone has to know Hey, hey, where did she go? Please, please. 
The song Pray Sister Pray by Indigenous musician Crystal Shawanda here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second part of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we continue our interview with Tia Oros Peters. She has been active in community organizing, advocacy, and nonprofit development for over three decades. She is also the CEO of the Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples, which supports community-generated cultural revitalization, movement building, and re-indigenization strategies. Tia Oros-Peters is a contributory author in the new anthology titled Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic, which draws together the stories of 52 women across the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. The collection encompasses the perspectives of women who are frontline responders and recovering patients, going out to work, staying at home to work, and losing their jobs, living with multiple generations and living in isolation, women grieving loved ones and celebrating new love, women preparing to give birth and supporting the dying. Although differing based on location, age, race, and health, they share the unique capacity of women to bring their strength, ingenuity, and love for others and for self to an uncertain time. And now part two of our two-part interview with Tia Oros-Peters on heroics, women's lived experiences during the coronavirus pandemic. Tia, you talked about on your piece the ancestors already know and then the the book that we're talking about anthology of heroics tour this um nature of the political realities which you kind of sketched and you kind of drew with us when you're in this conversation well you are many women are if not all are heroes heroines if you will but especially when the systematic approach of femicide and the treatment of women worldwide and also in the United States, um, um, did any of that kind of reflect within the story that you wrote about, it's not only in nature, because even, even that being, Earth Mother being, well, the extraction industries and the pipelines and the, dams and you you know and the list goes on and on and on did that come to your consciousness as you were trying to pick up take your story through words as far as the ancestors already know the piece that you did yeah i, I think that it did you know i, I uh, we're just not in linear time right and so there's this whole spiraling motion and, and none of that none of life would not regenerate there would be no spiraling motion of of connected life, of connected intelligence, and none of that phenomena that we're a part of would exist without females. We are we are the ones that regenerate. Um, Mother Earth is regenerating or had some opportunities to regenerate herself when things were in the early lockdown, and hopefully we'll continue to be able to be regenerating throughout 
throughout time for all of us. It definitely came to my mind. I thought so much about, you know, even watching the news along the way, especially at the time of that administration that was at at the helm at the at the time. You know, so so um, patriarchal, so white supremacist, so violent, so cruel. You know, just a really malicious, malignant maleness. I guess I'd say every possible example of toxic masculinity. And I'm not one to think that that men inherently are toxic or masculinity is toxic at all. We're all part of a large balance, a full spectrum of, of energy, and we all have them within us. And the world needs it, needs it all. It's just like the world can't regenerate without female, can't really regenerate without male. We're all part of a big balance. But at that particular time, it was so evident that the violence that was emanating, certainly from the U.S. administration, but really worldwide, I mean, there were coups going on, and there were all kinds of just, Bolsonaro was going crazy in Brazil. You know, there's just such terrible things that were happening, and and so much of it was emanating from a male place, that this is the counterbalance, the female energy, Mother Earth, and, and women, and female relatives like that deer were in this kind of, if this were a, a fight, if this were a tug of war, and maybe it is, on the other side of that battle, fighting for life and, and trying to create it and try to generate it and, and trying to find it and trying to nourish it and try to grow it. And then the other side, the destroyer's world, which is the psychopathic killing everything and eating everything, consuming everything, violating everything, um, is on the other side. And that's what caused the pandemic, is that violence. So it was in my consciousness. I guess it is every day. I guess it is every day. I turn on the news and I get really tired of seeing white men tell me anything. I get really tired of them saying anything to us. I don't think they have anything to share or to add that will make this world a better place. And I know that will be hard for some of the listeners to hear. But I do not think that they have an answer for our continued existence, for us to thrive, for us to do more than survive, for us to create, and to replenish the earth, not only from our own being, but in all the ways that Mother Earth is trying to regenerate herself. I just don't think they have the answer. The United Nations, when they celebrated the International Women's Day, put out a publication where they're talking about, especially women in leadership, achieving the equal future in COVID-19 world, and that the need for effective participation and leadership in all areas of progress in every facet and that women are on the forefront of the battle against COVID as many aspects of whether it be doctor, scientists, caregivers or or many other parts of that. But about women being need to participate in the leadership and the political decisions of nation states as well as communities. Many indigenous nations that's what would have been that's an ongoing process and it's been better than within the nation states when we talk about this notion of collective consciousness and this notion that you just talked about making a choice and these readings call attention to the political reality but also a need for systematic change if our countries nation states plural is to merge as a humane and just society. 
um, this anthology talks about that. What do you say, since you've been a real participant within, like uh, what Harriet Mann and Orrin Lyons always reminds us, and that is we are we need to go to the table and we need to be at the table and speak for a variety of issues and a variety of means and a variety of of concerns. At the ending of the book, at the ending of these, this story that you wrote, I know you won't tell us how it goes because we have to help <laughs> you give the story away. But this notion of leadership, this notion of, this notion of going to the, being part of the discussion of making decisions. I feel that if women were in leadership, took over Senate and Congress would be in a better place. What do you think about that participation in the world arena and with nation states and with even different different indigenous peoples as they move up to the challenge of the day about creating a humane and just society? What do you think about that? Yeah, thank you for the question. Super loaded, right? Yeah. Because there's this whole thing around, I definitely think we need to be at the table or else we're the meal. We know that. We might even be kind of get our little pieces cut off of us while we're sitting right there at the table trying to make and contribute to decisions and policy and things that are really going to impact ourselves, our families, communities, and those future generations that we talked about. So it's even dangerous to sit at the table, but we need to be there to be part of this decision-making, sure. And as the UN will often say, full and effective participation in leadership and decision-making, right? So that's okay. I, I definitely, I mean, that's why we've participated in things. And I definitely believe in organizing and participating and fully engaging like toe-to-toe -to -toe if we need to in every possible arena. And international dialogues are just one of many organizing platforms. And then at the same time, it's really loaded because um, is the answer to make sure that women or Native peoples, for example, are in the systems of oppression that were not designed for us and were in fact created specifically to either destroy or at best marginalize us. And there's a real, you know, um, a sense in me, I don't even think we should be participating. And that, I, I hear that that's like a bifurcation of what I just said, right? Because we've got to be there or else they're going to eat us alive because they're already doing that. They're destroying places, they're destroying our lives, devouring our cultures decimating homelands. Okay, so we got to be in those conversations or else that will only continue to, to be going unrelenting. Then again, the other part of that is when we participate and engage, put our energy in these systems and it perpetuates it by being a part of it, um, we're setting ourselves up because the system, like what is it, uh, W.E. Dubois said, the system cannot fail those it was never designed to serve. These systems were never built to serve us. In fact, their DNA as an entity were designed specifically to destroy us. How do we navigate ourselves, our message, our intent, our purpose in a system like being like traveling the veins of the belly of the beast? How do we travel that and, and survive and still achieve what we're there to do if we're inside of a structure or an entity that's created to kill us, to annihilate us, to devour us. And it's a real, um, well, it's a dichotomy. 
it's a dichotomy of existence. It's a, it's a pendulum going back and forth or a seesaw back and forth, and sometimes we're at the very center of that, right? Okay, so which side am I on? You know, um, and, and I can probably make an argument for both or neither because um, it's really, um, it's a very dangerous part of the landscape. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, part two of a two-part interview with Tia Oros-Peters. She has been an active in community organizing, advocacy, and nonprofit development for over three decades, and is presently the CEO of the Seventh Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples. And she is a contributory author on the brand new anthology that we're interviewing her on, titled Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic, which draws together the stories of 52 women across the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now, back to the interview. Um, what we might need to do in order to make sure people in those future generations have a, have a world in which to survive and could be healthy and know themselves as who they are in their deepest selves, and then sitting at the table you know, with vampires, and it's getting dark. That's where we are right now. I, I, don't, I don't know, and I struggle with it. But we struggle with it and have conversations about it in the organization all the time. How you use the tools, or can you even use tools of oppression, or not of oppression, but of the oppressors, of the colonizers, to free ourselves? Probably not. So how do we most focus our energy and our support on the freedom? And what does liberation really look like in this context when systems have been created to shackle us to capitalism, destroying each other, to narcissism, to individuality, all the things that are the opposite to indigenous consciousness? I don't know what the answer is. I, I am navigating it all the time every day. That's why I ask that question to you, because I know that within the circles that we share, um, that that is occurring, that question of all the things that you said. One of the aspects of, you talked about water and the water spirit, you talked about the sun spirit, you talked about the spirit goes around, and you talk about all this, what drives you, what, 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 uh, inside of you why should we care and i want you to want to take the opportunity for you to express why should we care why should we be good ancestors why should we um, look in the seventh generation talk to us about that especially the youth that are very active but many times they are so active that they cannot see the forest from the trees, you might say. Talk to us about that. Talk to the youth. What's your message? Mm. I think about this a lot, too. And standing here, I'm looking here in my, my office at images of grandchildren and parents and my husband and our daughter and, and um, some people who have gone on and some people who are that's hopefully just a really, really long, beautiful life ahead of them. We're part of a really huge cycle of life. I mean, individual humanity, we're just, whether we are as an individual or humanity as, as a species, we're really just part of a larger part 
of a huge system that supports life or supports everything that's about life, which includes death. You know, we're like what, like pine needles on a on a pine tree or part of the bark of a redwood or those deer, you know, that had all those teachings and still have all those teachings and carry all kinds of messages for us. And where are those deer where we are the birds that fall out of burning skies all over cities. We're the water. We are made of all these things. We're made of stardust. We're made, made of sunshine. You know, we're made of all of these things. And we're not separate from it. Being a good ancestor doesn't only have to do with our great, great, great grandchildren, but it has to do with the great, great, great grandchildren of the little bird that came to the window or of those water beings like, you know, water strider or salmon that also are part of the regeneration and the life cycle. Um, we have to do our part. We have to do our part. We have to decenter ourselves as people and humans as being the most important thing in the universe and put in the center how we're connected to everything. And that our, our being in a good way and living in a good way and contributing through our daily practices, through ceremony, through kindness, through walking tenderly on the skin of Mother Earth, that's going to make the world a better place. Why would we not want to live in a better world and that we did something? Why would we not want to live in a world with clean water? Why would we not want to live in a world with good thoughts? Why would we not want to live in a world where there were no vampires sitting next to us at decision-making tables? We can do it. It may not take this only generation, right? It may take multiple generations because it took us a while to get here. But to be part of something that's life-affirming as opposed to life-destroying, the answer is really clear. It's hard in the U.S. when everything is so individualized and even our young people are, you know, can even hurt each other over a pair of tennis shoes or steal from grandma for a drug fix. It's really hard to unlearn quick fixes um, or the escapes that we think will save us for a day or a year, you know, from everybody else's behaviors. But if we could just stop for a moment, and that's what I was hoping that shelter in place would provide the universe, including myself, to stop any practices or thinking or doing that that wasn't helping. If we could just stop for a moment and wait a minute and look around at what we could do that was good. So much easier. It's so much easier to do that than to just participate. It's like getting into traffic in Southern California, like you're not going anywhere. If we get off that road and get onto a road that in truth is actually much longer traveled, much more well-traveled, much better known, but not over the last 50 years or 100 years, but from a longer ago, get on that other pathway, probably not paved. It may be a little bumpy. It's probably dirt, but on that one, we're going to be able to have a better life, a stronger life, better relationships with each other and all kinds of living things, and we can do it. We have an opportunity. This pandemic was like a big old slap in the face, and it continues to, to jack us up, right? If we can look at what time may be offering us, it is saying, hey, stop. We're going to make you stop. We're going to make you stop and take a look around. Make you focus on what matters. Make you stop harm worshiping. Everything's about guns and killing and violence and oppression. What kind of world is that? You know, so 
to speak to the young people, if they would listen, I would ask them to turn off their phone, turn off the radio, sit outside, breathe in some air, get some of that much-needed vitamin D of a sunny day, and listen to the songs that were put on the wind a thousand years ago, and, and follow those tunes. That's what I would say. Let's put our minds together as one and remember the ones who passed on to the sky world. Their life duties are complete. They are living peacefully in the sky world. In the sky world. Let's put our minds together as one and remember the ones who passed on to the sky world. Their life duties are complete. They are living peacefully in the sky world. In the sky world. The moment of silence is over. And that was part two of a two-part interview with Tia Oros-Peters. She has been active in community organizing, advocacy, and nonprofit development for over three decades. She presently serves as the CEO for the 7th Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples. And she is a contributory author in the new anthology titled Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic which draws together the stories of 52 women across the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Tia Oros-Peters, CEO of the 7th Generation Fund for Indigenous Peoples. For more information, you can visit their website at 7genfund.org. And for the new book, Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic, you can visit the regalhousepublishing.com website. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Crystal Shawanda, Teresa Bear Fox's Skyworld song sang by Tio Swath, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time.
us against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread The moment of silence is over